Hi, this is Nick Lannon, pastor of Grace Anglican Church. Uh, this session of our study of Genesis 1 to 11 on the image of God, led by Michael Neal, turned into more of a group discussion than usual. Normally, our practice is to ask our teacher to repeat the questions, uh, which are difficult to hear on the recording, and then we edit out the questions as they're asked on the recording. That became impractical in this particular class due to the number of questions and the nature of the discussion. Therefore, we've decided to leave the audio of this class unedited. So the questions and some of the discussions may be hard to hear, but leaving it all in helps the recording make more sense than editing it out would. So as you listen, keep that in mind. That said, I hope you enjoy the class. Now over to Michael on the image of God. Okay, um, we're going to go ahead and get started. It's 11.02, and as we're all aware of by now, I'm long-winded. Um, <clears throat> sometimes I say a lot without saying a lot. <clears throat> all right. Uh, We'll go ahead and get started. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into uh, talking about the image of God, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for bringing us here today safely uh, to worship you and to be served and fed by you at your table. I pray, Lord, that during the study we will thank your thoughts after you and will be renewed. It's Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, same thing. Uh, I'll do the same thing I normally do today. We're, we're going to be talking about the image of God. The Imago Dei is another um, sort of phrase that you'll hear for this. And um, I won't be saying Imago Dei a lot. I'll just be saying image of God probably. But uh, so we'll be, we'll be talking about the image of God. A couple of resources that um, I found somewhat helpful for this. Uh, you've already seen me talk about this book or heard me talk about this book, Rethinking Genesis 1 through 11 by Gordon Wenham. Um, again, it's a great book. Uh, part of the, the value of that book is it's, um, it really gets you into the ancient Near Eastern culture, comparing and contrasting that with um, the Hebrew culture and the, the, the uh, religion of the Israelites, which is ultimately the foundation of our Christian faith. And um, the next is a, an article from, uh, by Peter Gentry. He's a professor of Old Testament at the uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary here in town. He's a phenomenal Old Testament scholar. And um, this is on his academia page, so you, anyone can get it. You don't have to have a subscription to the journal to get it. It's, um, and it's a, it's a really interesting article. Uh, it's, well, as you can see, humanity is the divine image. It's about the image of God, but uh, it's... It's really interesting. It's, it's good in lots of respects. He defends his positions well, but of course, I think he leaves lots of questions unanswered, um, which is, uh, I, I will also today. Um, and I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Nick told me not to be so explicit about it, but I'm disobeying. Um, but I don't know what the image of God is. I'm not entirely sure. I'll be honest about that. Um, there are uh, all kinds of theories, and what I'm finding is that um, everyone has their sort of pet theory, their way of understanding it, um, and some uh, some of those theories have better arguments in support of them than others, I think. But um, Michelangelo took a stab at it on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. That, that's that's very true. That's very true. Um, so 
And a lot of people would be upset with him for imaging the father like that. But um, yeah, so yeah, right. I know. But anyway, so that's no. Um, so I, you know, I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm going to say some things about it that I think um, are reasonable things to say from the text um, of Genesis and other places in Scripture. And we'll uh, we'll just have to wrestle with those questions as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of God's word. So, um, all right. Uh, let's, let's jump into reading the text. We're going to read from Genesis 1, Genesis 5, and then Genesis 9 because these are the three major passages in Genesis that talk explicitly about man being made in the image and the likeness of God. So Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and I remember this week to include which translation I'm using up here. It's the ESV, the English Standard Version, okay? And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Before I move on, I want to point out a couple of things. Um, you see these terms here, dominion, uh, subdue down here in connection to uh, dominion as well. And then this, uh, let us make man in our image. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. It's a fairly contested um, sentence or line in scripture. And so uh, but there's some really interesting things that we can say about it. So uh, but those are those ideas of dominion subduing and then being made um, in our image is something that's going to come up. Um, Genesis 5, 1 through 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And, God's, and God blessed Noah. So this is after the flood. So Noah and his sons, they exit the ark. Um, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So you see again this sort of cultural mandate coming out after creation's been undone. Now God's starting a new creation again with a new, you might say, covenant head because he then, you know, Adam was a former covenant head. Um, there's, we'll talk about that in a second. But anyway, Noah's going to be, he establishes a new covenant with Noah. But be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image." And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Okay, so um, 
Let's look at Genesis 1 and the image of God in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Uh, so humans, a lot of scholars think that humans are supposed to be seen as the sort of the pinnacle, the climax, the high point of God's creative work. And they're made on the last day. Um, and they're made on the last day um, before God's Sabbath rest. Uh, along with the animals, some people have taken that to mean that humans aren't as unique as uh, maybe we thought, but um, I don't know that that's right. Uh, but there is that school of thought out there. Um, but they're, they're made on the last day. Uh, everything, and there are two reasons to think that, that this is significant, um, that they are the, the pinnacle of creation, and that is everything in days one through five leading up to day six, the creation of man, has basically been in the service of man. Um, God's put man in a, a garden sanctuary that's beautiful. It has trees for um, uh, shelter. It has uh, food on those trees for them to eat, and these things were delightful. And there's also, it says they're delightful to the eye. So uh, not only are these things good to eat, but they're also good for, like, aesthetic appreciation, so to speak. Okay? So everything working up, you know, days one through five, were, um, God gave man in service of him, um, in service of man. Uh, he created Adam a communal being, and he gave Adam Eve. And you see Adam sings a little song about Eve when he sees uh, Eve is created, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So another thing that, and this, this is, I find super interesting, um, and we're going to, I was like, yeah, this is going to be a rabbit trail, but we're going to go down it anyway, just for the heck of it, you know. Um, so uh, Gordon Winham points out that uh, he thinks that in, in verse, uh, I think it's 27, uh, no, it's in 26, God invites the heavenly host to observe the creation of Adam and Eve. And he says, quote, that is the implication of the first plural, let us make man in our image. So right here, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion and so on. So. Can I ask a question? Yes. Why wouldn't that refer to the Father and the Son. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that's one, that's, that's one thing I want to say. So thank you, Betty. I appreciate it. There, um, this is a contested passage. There are um, a few schools of thought, but one is that this is a reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? Um, other people say, no, uh, it's not a reference to the Trinity, but it's a reference to the divine council or the divine assembly, and we're going to look at what that is here in just a minute, and that's the rabbit trail. <laughs> um, but um, you don't need this passage, they would say, in this, this particular uh, line um, to make out the Trinity in Genesis 1. So you don't lose the Trinity in the Old Testament, um, is what they would say, because you still have the, uh, God this as the Father um, creating the world in the, at the very beginning, Genesis 1, you know, 1, 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he does it through, and you see the Spirit is hovering over the water. So we've got two members of the Trinity there. And then we find out in uh, the Gospel of John, he does this through his word, and that word is ultimately Christ. And Paul tells us, too, in various places that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, um, was actually there present, creating the world. All things were made through him, right? So um, I think they would say, and this is not necessarily my, my position on this, but I'm just going to introduce you to it. Just, you know. Um, 
so uh, if you ask me what my position was on a lot of these things, I'd say, I don't know. <laughs> I tried to figure that out um, in a lot of ways. But, um, but yeah, so, so you don't lose the Trinity in Genesis 1 or in the Old Testament. If you in, interpret, uh, let us make man in our image, um, in, in the sin, as a reference to the divine uh, council or divine assembly or heavenly hosts. Does that make sense? Okay. So I know that's a worry, but you don't lose it, they would say. Um, okay. So what is, and I have this down here, I don't know if you can see it. So who are uh, the heavenly hosts? Well, they're just basically, they're beings, that, they're angelic beings that are created by God. They don't exist independently of God. There's no scriptural support for that idea. They, they were created by God um, and actually serve God, and we'll look at that here in a second. A really interesting example of how they serve God. Yes? When you uh, talked about God created, uh, my little Bible says humankind, and it mm-hmm. said that he spoke of Adam and Eve as humankind. Right. So I don't really... Well, we we are speaking of it. I'm not sure I'm following you, so I'm going to try to say something. You tell me if I'm if I'm getting you. But um, we are speaking of Adam and Eve. But um, the significance of speaking in Adam and Eve for us, in particular, sitting in these chairs or standing here is that as we speak of them, in particular Adam, he's our representative head. So basically what we're going to be saying of Adam uh, are things that we're going to be saying of ourselves. But his kids were made in his likeness, yeah. not in God's likeness. But you're one of those. <laughs> well, you'll have to wait until you get to the New Testament. Yeah, we're, I, I'm not sure I'm following exactly what you're saying, but um, it seems to me that if he's talking about Adam, he's talking about his posterity too. And when you get to the Gospel of uh, Luke in chapter 3, um, you have Luke's uh, genealogy of Jesus end with son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. So there is the suggestion, even in the New Testament, that this is a universalizing kind of thing, the image of God is. That mankind as a whole is made in this image, and the particular individuals that make up mankind are made in that image. Well, okay. it doesn't say that. Well, I mean, the Bible doesn't say lots of things. You know, we don't have any, you know, we don't have a, all the, you know, very complex uh, formulaic uh, expressions of the Trinity that we get from the councils and so on. But they're all based on biblical data that has been pulled together. So, you know, you might be right that it doesn't say it. But it doesn't make it wrong if it doesn't say it explicitly, I guess is, I think, what some people would want to say. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Tiffany, and then you. Um, maybe this is too simplistic, but perhaps I mean, we know that we are the only creatures that we made that mm-hmm. know God. So in that sense, we are in him, his image. No, nobody else knows God but man and Right. Right. Well, we're really getting into uh, getting into the weeds, and this is this is okay. Um, but so, 
I think there's what you're expressing sounds like uh, something in the history of theology that's been called a, a, a substantialist or substantive or a capacity view of the image of God. And I wasn't going to get into this, but I'll just briefly touch on it since you're asking you. It's on topic. Uh, but um, that view says there, there are varieties uh, that, that sort of answer to that broader category of substantive view. But um, one of which says something like what you're saying, that it, it is in our cognitive capacities that we resemble God. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Presumably, he's also rational. And there's a whole debate about whether knowledge and rationality actually come apart from one another. But that's for the philosophy classroom. Um, but um, the people will say it's, 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 it's in our cognitive capacities that we, that we resemble God, and this is what the image of God, you know, uh, consists in. One of the, I will say, one of the limitations of that view that doesn't necessarily make it wrong, but one of the limitations of that view is that um, it's both too broad and too narrow. And let me give you an example of this real quick, because I, I do have a slide for it. I, I didn't think we'd actually get to it today, but here we are. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Doc. Yeah, you're a wise man, and I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. You're right. You're right. Um, all right. So uh, there have been two major objections raised to this substantive view in the history of theology. The first one is what I'm calling the too narrow view, and it says it goes like this: whatever quality, mental or you know, moral or whatever, whatever quality you want to. Um, assign or identify as, uh, or set of qualities because you could say, well, it's the conjunction of the, you know these qualities that makes you know the image of God. But whatever quality or set of qualities you identify as constituting the image of God, there will be someone or some group who lacks that quality or set of qualities that you would intuitively want to count as being made in God's image. So, for example, the unborn, the severely mentally handicapped, or something like that. And so, um, if if we if we buy into that kind of idea. It seems too narrow. It's, it, it excludes people we wouldn't want to exclude. So, for example, let's say um, we pick rationality, and we define rationality as something roughly like uh, complying with rational requirements. And philosophers have a lot of debate about what rational requirements are, but they may be something like this. Um, if you believe that P, so where P is just some proposition, let's say that the sky is blue. If you believe that the sky is blue, then you should believe, um, uh, let, me, let me do this. If you believe that uh, the cat is on the mat, then the cat is asleep. Let's say you believe that proposition. It's a conditional proposition. If you believe that the cat is on the mat, then the cat is asleep. And you also believe that the cat is on the mat, have that second belief, then you should draw the inference that the cat is asleep, right? That's just, that's just what follows from that conditional statement and then affirming the, the first part of the conditional statement called the antecedent. I'm getting into the, the weeds here. But the point, it's, um, it's called a belief closure requirement um, on rationality. Anyway, the, uh, the point is that sometimes these rational requirements can be really complex. And it's not clear at all that even in the most like rudimentary uh, forms that rational requirements come to us in that, that, that the unborn, let's say, have them, or small children. Um, they don't necessarily care about consistency in, in some of their beliefs. You know, at least it's not that we can tell. So I think some people would want to say that 
um, that's a severe limitation to identifying the image of God with knowledge or rationality or some type of mental capacity or set of mental capacities. Does that make sense? I present that. Is that? Yeah, Doc. Yes, it does. And, but that's only a criticism if you narrow the substantive view to mm-hmm. rationality. Mm-hmm. I take the substantive view. Right. And I, I don't. It's, it's uh, first of all, it's self-reflective awareness, which is what I would think the let us is not really fully Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. There is also rationality. There's also relation. Right. Uh, that, yeah, that's inclusive. Yeah. Issue, but I think there are fewer problems than with the than, than with other uh, representatives. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I I think I tend to I think I tend to agree with you on that. You know, but Mike, I'll remind you the first rule of Holmes, though: when you find yourself in one, stop doing. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. So go. Yeah, go ahead. Well, we haven't even gotten there yet. The rabbit hole was the divine assembly, so, so that, that's okay. Yeah, but that's all right. We're digging a different hole. This image of God, I think for most of us, it's a physical image. And that, we have a hard time with that. I've always thought it as a spiritual, yeah. in our soul and our yeah, yeah, yeah. mind, mm-hmm. uh, although we don't know the, the mind of God, but right. he created us, like we're all saying, to rationalize, to have the capacity to create and love. Right. That is easier for me, anyway, to wrap around than right. I have a body like God. Now, Jesus is the Son of God, and he did have our body, but right, right. that's the Trinity part, and I, have that, that, I can separate those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there, there seems, you're, I think, so you're saying that there seems to be for many of us this physical element to being made in God's image. I think so. Yeah, um, I don't necessarily disagree with that. And, and I think that when you have Christ come on the scene, he is the, the perfect image of God. Paul talks about this in Colossians. Um, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with saying that it seems it seems right but um that there, there's some truth to that yeah to have souls or any object that has a soul and that's part of that image of god that i can i can hold on to it's the soul hmm. and the uh, the mind part that is easier for me to right reflect on it, and i agree as a conceptual matter it's easier to to, to sort of grasp that um but when we're trying to uh draw out you might say concrete implications uh, of, of what we're grasping with our minds, um, we've got to be careful because uh, we might leave whole groups of people out. And we, you know, God forbid, we get to a point in, in the church's theology where we, we, we don't care about the unborn because they don't have these capacities, or if they do, we can't tell that they do. So, hey, you can't blame us if we just treat them any way we want, right? Um, we don't want to get there for sure. So we have to be, I think we have to be careful about 
um, what, because you know what they say, orthodoxy leads to uh, orthopraxy, like uh, proper belief leads to proper uh, practice or life. And um, I think that, that uh, we, we have to be careful and make sure we're thinking appropriately about these things. But it's not always easy to think rightly about a complex world that God created. It's not easy all the time. Yeah. Yes. I think I'm, I'm going to go back to what George was saying. Now, okay. He, uh, he created man in the image of God, Adam and Eve, before the fall. Mm-hmm. So the next, after the fall, Seth, which is the third child, is born in an image of Adam. So yes. That, that kind of leads to believe that with the fall, with our image is corrupted. We are not in the total image of God. And later, uh-huh. Paul says that we are conformed to the image of Christ. Image of Christ. Yes. So if we would be, if every human is created in the image of God, why would they would need to be conformed to the image of Christ? Because the image is corrupted. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what George meant. Right. Following the Yeah. Is the, is the humans who were, who were created after the animals who knew God and then uh, 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 rebelled and disobeyed? Right. Are they in the image of God or are they more or less on mm-hmm. the same level of the humans? Of the animals? Sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's why I thought I just... Okay. Yeah, no, no. That, that makes sense. I think... Thank you. I feel like that, that helped clear it up for me some. Um, yeah, I, and I... So uh, you're right. And, and you go to Luther... Um, on this, and he, he's going to say, he sort of talks out of both sides of his mouth, and I'm a huge Luther fan, I love Luther, but he's confusing sometimes. But he's, he says that we've lost in various places, all kinds of places, he says we've lost the image of God. And then later he says, we haven't fully lost it, it's just been severely corrupted. And that much seems right. Um, now, I will say that in response to, I think, uh, if I'm understanding what you're saying, in response, people will, they'll, they'll go to, uh, Genesis 9. I've already mentioned the, you know, the Gospel of Luke and the genealogy of Jesus. There, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. There's one explanation for that is that the image of God hasn't been lost. It's been marred, but it hasn't been totally lost. Um, another explanation is that all the people listed in the genealogy are righteous people in the Old Covenant, and, um, uh, and so they are ultimately in the image of God because they're regenerate. They are a new creation through their forward-looking faith to the, the, the Savior. Okay, that's one way of understanding it. Um, so, but even if you don't want to go to the genealogy in Luke, you can, you could, some people, most people will go to Genesis 9 to try to handle the objection you're raising. It's a very good objection. It makes, makes a lot of sense. But they'll say, um, Genesis 9 seems to affirm that people after the fall we're still in God's image. There's still some remnant of it there. And because whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And they'll say, well, this suggests that man is still in God's image. Now, my opinion of this, verse 6 here, is that there's no logical necessity, right, in uh, the conclusion that man is still in God's image. I mean, it might be that um, God is saying that man was created in his image. It's been entirely lost, but out of respect for what was there and, what the, and, and the potential that could be in being, uh, 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 having the image of God restored to him or her, um, we don't shed man's blood. 
That's another way of understanding it. I'm not sure which is, is the right way, but that, those, are, those are ways that, that seem to be logically consistent, at least with the way the text reads on its face, if that makes sense. Um, yes? A lot of people argue that the cultural mandate is connected to our reflection of the glory of God. Like, the reason God commanded to fill the earth is the fullness that is in the earth. So Genesis talks a lot about fullness. Isaiah's revelation talks a lot about um, fullness and that somehow that fullness of the earth mm-hmm. in creation reflects the glory of God. And we would not have a reiterated uh, cultural mandate unless we still, to some degree, um, mm-hmm. as we look forward in faith and are regenerate, yeah. are glorifying God. Um, so the reiteration of the cultural mandate in nine also seems to suggest that um, that God still bears the image, yeah. especially when uh, looking forward in faith and regenerate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's good. That, that definitely makes some sense, too. Um, yeah, anyone else? Well, yes? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's. Um, th- I definitely think that's true. Um, we reflect God's glory, and this has probably got something to do with uh, uh, well, reflecting or imaging God. Um, I, I'm hesitant personally to get totally get rid of the physical uh, part of it. I think that we'll, we'll, um, our bodies will be spiritual in some sense, but I think that we'll retain um, the, 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 this earth uh, and all of its, its uh, material. It's going to be recreated, but it's not going to be this ethereal kind of thing. It's going to be this you know, corporeal kind of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, but I don't think you're, what you're saying is wrong. I don't think it's incompatible with also um, appreciating some f- physical... Um, uh, Element to the image of God. But. When Jesus said, when the Word is made flesh, to me, right there, that's our best. No, that's, that's why I don't really want to get rid of it, because I think it, it's kind of, it wreaks havoc on the incarnation, it seems to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. Uh, any, any, yes? I just want to, this, is, this goes along with uh, what's already been said about the cultural mandate, but the commandment is the same. The commandment, be fruit and mul- fruitful and multiply, mm-hmm. there it is, right there. Right. After the ark. Yes. And then it's in 128. It's three times he gives that commandment. Mm-hmm. 128, 9, 12, and 9, 7. Right, yeah. So to me, that there's a real continuity in that commandment. I agree. I agree. <laughs> That's what, I mean, he yeah. wants the same thing. For the people who came out of the ark. Yeah, well, he's he he destroyed the earth, and now he's recreating it again through right. um, righteous Noah right. and his line, which will ultimately lead to Christ. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So. Um, all right. Well. What time is it? All right. Okay. So, um, the divine assembly. We're going to get back to this rabbit trail. So. Um, and, and, you know, I think uh, a lot of folks haven't been introduced to this, but it, it's, it's biblical. There, there, is, there are angelic beings in Scripture who 
converse with God and do God's bidding. And we don't seem to think about that a lot. And um, uh, also this sort of, I, I have this belief, um, I think it's, it's uh, based in scripture that there isn't a, really a sharp divide between no matter how much our sort of, you know, post-enlightenment minds want to separate them, the physical and the spiritual. Um, I'm not saying there isn't a difference between um, uh, physicality uh, and non-physicality or immateriality or something like that. I think there probably is. Um, uh, I don't think those are nonsense concepts, but, but I think that um, there's not a great divide between the physical and the spiritual, um, like, like we would probably tend to think. Anyway, um, so that's part of the reason I think it's really cool to talk about this. Um, so other names that pop up for members of the divine assembly or the divine council in Scripture would be angels, messengers, right, uh, divinities, gods, maybe sons of God. Um, so... Uh, these are the heavenly hosts. They hang out around God's throne. They're, um, they're in conversation with God um, about his creation and what he's doing. And, and like I said, Gordon Wenham thinks that um, this passage uh, uh, in uh, Genesis 1.26 is referring to the divine council. He's inviting them. He's saying, hey, come and take a look at what I'm about to do. I'm going to create man, and also I'm going to create man in my likeness and my image. Um, or maybe in ours, this is a whole nother issue that comes up because now you have to deal with this question, well, are the angels also made in God's image? And what does that say about the Satan in Scripture? Like that's, that's, a, that's a, I don't know, but I mean, if Wenham's right about this and that he's not alone, lots of other, I mean, Peter Gentry, um, he, he argues the same thing. If they're right about this, it's a question they have to answer. I haven't heard them answer that question. I've been looking, and that's a limitation of uh, Gentry's article. I wish he would have addressed some of these hard questions. But um, so Psalm 82.1, ESV, um, for anyone who wants to know, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. Okay? Um, the, in these various passages here, Psalm 29, we, sh- we see uh, where uh, the divine assembly or the members of the divine assembly, they worship God. In Psalm 103, they obey God. And I'm going to talk to you about 1 Kings chapter 22, where we see a member, uh, we see a few members of the divine council or assembly talking to one another. And then you see one who steps up and, and actually does what God wants them to do. So let's look at this. Um, uh, what you've got in 1 Kings 22 is you've got the divided kingdom of Israel. So you've got Israel and Judah, right? King Ahab is wicked. He's the king of Israel. And then you've got um, uh, Jehoshaphat. Couldn't remember his name. Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah. He goes and um, visits Ahab. And Ahab says, hey, um, this land that the, Syrians, or the, the king of Syria now has, uh, Ramoth Gilead, it's actually our land. We've remained quiet about it for long enough. I want to get it. And so he says, hey, Jehoshaphat, will you go with me and fight? Will you help me get Ramoth Gilead back? And Jehoshaphat says, yes, I'll do that. My men are your men. My horses are your horses. I'm down to ride. You know, it's, uh, we're going to fight. Um, so, but Jehoshaphat, being sort of the righteous um, figure in, in this narrative, he says, but, but first, let's see what the Lord has to say about this. So Ahab, he's like, okay, I can do that. So he calls, I think, like 400 priests or something, or, or uh, prophets, excuse me. And he, um, 
he has, he asks, what's the Lord got in store for me here? Um, am, am I going to be victorious? And they say, yes, the Lord will deliver um, Ramoth Gilead into your hands today. Go and take it. So um, Jehoshaphat, and it's not clear why, I, I, as I was looking through this, it's just not clear why he thought this, but he, thought that he seems to have this skeptical attitude about what Ahab is saying. And he's like, wait a second, is there someone else, you know, to whom we can um, uh, inquire about uh, this battle? And so uh, Ahab says, yes, there is. There is one man we can, but I hate this man. I hate him. And, um, and Jehoshaphat says, okay, well, who is this? And he says, well, it's Micaiah. And he says, I hate Micaiah, this prophet, because Micaiah always prophesies evil against me. Um, always speaks evil of me. Well, and that's because Ahab was evil. So, you know, he was just in the business, Micaiah was in the business of calling a spade a spade. And um, so, uh, but Ahab, um, he agrees to this. He sends a messenger to Micaiah. The messenger says, hey, Micaiah, all the other prophets have said um, that uh, uh, Ahab will be victorious. Um, please, won't you join in with them and say that he'll be victorious too? This is essential. I'm paraphrasing this. And so, but Micaiah, being a, a, a loyal servant of the Lord, says, no, um, I'll speak what the Lord gives me to speak. Okay? I'm going to be faithful to what God's words and vision actually are. So, um, let me pull this up here. So now I'm going to start reading here. Um, so Micaiah initially comes to King Ahab and he says, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give, give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, so uh, uh, Ahab's already dubious of this. He doesn't believe the word of God's prophet. He's dubious. He says, um, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel. This is um, uh, Micaiah. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, and here's where we get into this bit about the divine counsel. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, all of the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab? So the Lord says to the divine counsel, these angelic beings, Who will entice Ahab? that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead. And, and one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Those 400 prophets that we just heard about. I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And I've lost my place because it's super small writing. Sorry. And he said, you are, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. How's that for uh, an ethical dilemma for God? Sending someone out to be a lying spirit in the mouth of prophets so that someone ultimately dies. Anyway, um, 
And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So just an, that's just an interesting uh, and I think pretty clear example of this divine assembly, this, the divine council where these angelic beings are in conversation with one another and in conversation with God and serving God and doing his bidding. So um, why is this important? How much time do we have? Four minutes. Um, it, what, does anyone have any questions so far? No? Okay. So um, I'm going to try to briefly wrap all this into some, something about the image of God. Well, this is, so this is interesting about God, um, you know, uh, conversing with the divine council and so on, and creating man in, in his image so that man has dominion over the earth. Um, because it expresses, in a sense, God's willingness to share his rule over the earth. It's, we, we are, at least some folks say, we are God's vice regents. We are his representative, his ruling kings on the earth. Right? You ever heard you know, Christ spoken of as prophet, priest, and king? Right? We are, as Adam was a king, to have dominion. These terms in Hebrew for subdue and dominion, to, to rule, these are terms often associated with kings in ruling their kingdoms, kings in defeating people in battle, kings subduing people unto slavery. Okay? So these are all kingly terms. Um, and so God, God is sharing, in some sense, his rule with us. And a lot of scholars think this has everything to do with us having a special relationship with God, and that is being sons of God, being made in God's image. So um, they, think, they, they go and say, well, the, hey, the ancient Near Eastern background supports this. You see this, this kind of language of divine assemblies, these sort of pantheons of gods. Um, in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, you see it uh, in the Bible. However, there is a major difference. The pantheon of gods in the Egyptian and ancient Near Eastern cultures, they fight with one another. They are equal in status and power and glory, but you do not see that in the, in the, the, the God of the Hebrews and the God of the Bible. You don't see that. Our God is far different. Um, he alone is worshipped. He is more powerful he is, uh, than any other uh, being. All other beings are created. They derive their life from him. He is the very source of life. Um, so you've got people like Peter Gentry and Gordon Wenham and people saying that so part of what's going on in Genesis and talking this way is that the authors of Genesis are um, providing a polemic, an argument against um, these cultures, these surrounding cultures, right? Just like Paul would go um, and... and uh, um, in the Areopagus, right? And he, he, would, he would talk with people about philosophy and ideas and theology, right? Um, the, uh, the, Israel was to do the same thing, and the church is supposed to be doing the same thing now. Um, so let's see. One minute. He says, The term image of God in the culture and language of the ancient Near East in the uh, 15th century B.C. would have communicated two, uh, two main ideas, rulers, uh, rulership and sonship. The king is the image of God because he has relationship to the deity as the son of God and a relationship to the world as a ruler of God. So you've got a vertical sort of element, which is this sonship. You're a son of God, and as a son of God, made in his image and reflecting God, you reflect that out horizontally to the world in terms of your rule and dominion. This is the idea. Um, and so uh, a lot of scholars think this is exactly the kind of idea 
that um, Scripture is trying to communicate to us about the image of God. A lot more to say about that, and that's all I have time to get through. Anyone have any questions? Yeah. Um, beginning of Job, mm-hmm. uh, when it actually refers to that, the sons of God come to present mm-hmm. themselves, is that kind of a good like this? Absolutely. Yeah, usually Job 1 and 2 are considered to be instances of a meeting of the divine council. Yeah, that's right. Anything else? Okay, that's it. Thanks. Yeah, all right. Thank you.